Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden. Um, I'm Olga Viso, the director of the Hirshhorn, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the fourth annual James T. Dimitrian Lecture. And our speaker tonight is Yves Alain Bois, who is an art historian who will be speaking on the work of Ellsworth Kelly. And we're thrilled that Ellsworth Kelly is with us tonight. We thought it'd be a wonderful opportunity uh, to celebrate Ellsworth's work uh, and to bring Yves Alain Bois, who has been working on a comprehensive catalog, a catalog raisonné, uh, that traces the work, uh, paintings and sculptures of Ellsworth Kelly, uh, who has been making and presenting his work over the last 60 years. So we thought it was a wonderful occasion to uh, invite Ivalan to speak about the work and to also mark uh, something that we're quite proud of, which is uh, a presentation of works from the Hirschhorn's collection, which are on view upstairs in the third floor galleries of the museum. And if you haven't had a chance um, to visit, we urge you to come back uh, and take a look at the gallery, which includes a uh, painting uh, that came into the collection initially through the generosity of Joseph Hirshhorn, and we also have Olga Hirshhorn, who's with us uh, this, this evening. Um, and also uh, new works, new paintings that have come into the collection through really the partnership and the generosity of Ellsworth Kelly, who worked very closely with us and our curatorial staff to really present a much more expansive range of his art in the collection. So we have works from the early 60s all the way to 2001. So Ellsworth, thank you so much for working with us to create this really glorious room that we're, we're thrilled to present. And also Jack Shear works with Ellsworth, uh, Matthew Marks from Matthew Marks Gallery for working with us collaboratively to make that happen. Before um, I introduce the program tonight, too, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the passing of Abram Lerner. And Al Lerner was the first director of the Hirshhorn Museum, uh, and he just passed away uh, last week. Uh, and he was the curator uh, for Joseph Hirshhorn from 1957 to 1966, and went on to become the founding director of the museum and served as its director until 1984. Uh, when he retired. And he was certainly incredibly influential in setting the course um, for the museum and, and where we are today. Um, we certainly remember him fondly, and there are many staff here, and Olga Hirshhorn and I talked about him today, in fact, uh, over lunch. So he will be missed, and we, we remember him fondly. Um, another cornerstone of the Hirshhorn's history is also with us tonight, and that is James T. Dmitrian. Uh, the second director of the Hirshhorn, uh, for which this annual lecture series is named. And the James T. Dimitrian Lecture um, is made possible through the Friends of Jim and Barbara Dimitrian Fund, which was a fund established in 2001 through individual gifts, private support, uh, to uh, celebrate and acknowledge the 17-year tenure of Jim Dimitrian. And Jim and his wife Barbara are with us tonight. And as always, it's wonderful to have you here, Jim, and present, and you've inspired so many of us here on the staff and in the museum and in the field. Um, as a national museum that's devoted to modern and contemporary art and to enhancing public understanding of the art and artists of our time, the, one of the ways that we do that is obviously through the programs we present, but also through programs like the James T. Dimitrian Lecture, uh, and also our Meet the Artist series. And uh, many people believe that our, the museum and our programs are entirely funded through federal dollars, but in fact, it is very much a public-private partnership. 
and it is through the support of private individuals, of corporations and foundations that make our programs possible and allow us to bring artists and work uh, collaboratively with artists um, all the time. So we are grateful to our funders, to our supporters who make that possible, and to our annual patrons uh, who support the museum in many ways. And if you're um, unfamiliar with our patrons program, we invite you um, to uh, take a look. We have some materials at the end as you exit in our upcoming calendar events. Um, so please um, pick that up on your way out. Um, we are tonight delighted to welcome Eva Lanbois to the Hirshhorn. Uh, Evelyn is a distinguished art historian and professor of the School of Historical Studies at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. He obtained his doctorate from the School of Higher Studies and Social Sciences in Paris in 1977, and he began his career at the National Center for Scientific Research in Paris also in 1977. And he was then on the faculty of Johns Hopkins University here in Baltimore from 1983 to 1991, at which time he accepted the Joseph Pulitzer Professorship of Modern Art in the Department of the History of Art and Architecture at Harvard University. He joined Harvard's faculty of the Institute for Advanced Study in 2005, and he is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He is a specialist in 20th century European and American art and is recognized for his wide range of studies on artists, including Henri Matisse, Pablo Picasso, Ella Zitsky, Barnett Newman, Ad Reinhardt, Robert Ryman, um, and it's an extensive list, and obviously including the work of Ellsworth Kelly. Dr. Bois is currently working, as I mentioned, on the catalog raisonné for Ellsworth Kelly's paintings and sculptures, and he's also curated and co-curated several important exhibitions um, over the past decade, including uh, Mondrian Retrospective at the National Gallery and Matisse and Picasso, A Gentle Rivalry for the Kimball Art Museum, and many others. He's the author of six books, which have been widely translated, and he's written more than 100 essays for exhibition, catalogs, scholarly journals, and publications. So please join me in welcoming Yves Alain Bois. I'll be, at the, I'll be worthy of this glorious introduction. Um, we can have the first slide, I think. Elsworth Kelly remembers reading in a review of the group show Towards a New Abstraction at the Jewish Museum in the summer of 1963, something like, he doesn't know how to make up his mind. Now, I didn't find the clipping yet, but Elsworth's memory is elephantine, so I don't doubt for a moment that the comment exists in some form. The works the critic was referring to and which puzzled him or her by their sheer diversity were dating from 1959 to 1963, a period during which Kelly was experimenting just as much as he had, as he had during his stay in France from 1948 to 1954. This kind of incomprehension had been weathered by Kelly before. Shortly after he came back from Paris, for example, Dorothy Miller persuaded him to bring samples of his work to the Museum of Modern Art so that the very busy Alfred Barr could have a look. Kelly, wanting to give an aperçu of what he had been, been doing in France, as well as a hint of the new direction he was taking, arrived in Barr's office with six works, a remarkable anthology of his production so far, chosen with an extraordinary lucid care. 
There were three works representing three of the four different formal strategies he had explored in France, and to which I shall briefly return later on. What I call the transfer in window, Museum of Modern Art of 1949, a relief reproducing in miniature one of the sash windows of the old pre-Pompidou Center, Museum, Musée National d'Art Moderne, Avenue du Président Wilson. Chance, in November, November painting of 1950, clearly indebted to Jean Arp, and based on the pieces of one of his drawings as they fell, fell on the floor of his studio when he was staring it. And the multi-panel painting, consisting of independent but abutting monochrome surface with red, yellow, blue, white, and black of 1953. Another work done in France, Dominican, of 1952, was less programmatic. It consists of two horizontal panels separated by a black band, which is a painted strip of wood, but the coloristic division of each panel into two color planes betrays the principle of one color per panel that Kelly had discovered with the brilliant colored colors for a large wall of 1951. My guess is that Kelly didn't want to give Barr the impression he was a kind of theoretician. The last two works were his first paintings with curves, the first tentative foray into what would become one of the main avenues of his work for the decade to come. Well, guess what? Even though Kelly left his work at MoMA for several months, even though Calder had told Barr all the good he thought of this amazingly inventive young man, Barr did not get Kelly's work. <clears throat> he, was, he probably thought that this heterogeneous panoply was a product of juvenile ADD, or even worse, of eclecticism which would have been considered almost a crime at that time of history by any apostle of modernism. It's easy to make fun of the blindness of one's predecessors, but we have to be kind in these two cases, for it is only in hindsight that the consistency of Kelly's production began to appear from his early work in France to what he's doing today, and even now, this fundamental unity might be elusive to those who do not have a clear picture of Kelly's lifelong trajectory. The works assembled in, in the Kelly room upstairs, to which I'll join the 1986 sculpture in the garden, could easily engender as dumbfounded a reaction as that of the critic I mentioned <clears throat> some 44 years ago. This is hardly surprising, given that these works were chosen precisely because they presented patently different aspects of Kelly's oeuvre in order, I suppose, to emphasize its considerable range. And mind you, I don't think that being puzzled is ultimately a bad thing, nor that one needs to have the development of Kelly's career at one's fingertip, that it is necessary for, to, to enjoy these works in, in themselves. But to go beyond puzzlement and to refine one's enjoyment, it does not hurt. Now, of these five works, I would say that only one does not refer back to Kelly's early Parisian production. Not surprisingly, it is a chronological chronologically the first, red-white, from 1961. I say not surprisingly because in many ways Kelly turned his back to his French years during the 10 years that followed his return to the US. Turning his back is too strong, let's say decided to ignore, more or less. I will speak a bit later about Kelly's capacity all his life to suddenly return to all the ideas of his, to suddenly make a painting or a relief that he had sketched but not realized, for example, 20 or 30, or even as long as 56 years before. But for the time being, I need to make a little detour via, via Kelly's French years 
precisely in order to explain why red-white is on a totally different course than the works of the preceding decade, and why, on the contrary, red-yellow-blue-5 on 1968, dark-green-curve of 1982, and white-relief <coughs> white of a dark-blue of 2002, um, while certainly different from what he had done in France, nevertheless referred to this early production, sometimes in very indirect ways, and this is even true of untitled work in the garden dating from 1986, even though Kelly only started making freestanding sculptures in 1959, way after he came back to France, from France. So bear with me, I promise this will be sort of brief. To make the choice short, I would say that what Kelly was searching in Paris what unites all these extraordinary diverse works on the period between 1948 and 1954 is a way not to compose. Now, why would a young artist be so interested in finding ways of avoiding composition, of deflating his ego, so to speak? As I see it, it had a lot to do with his disaffection for the modernist conception of art as self-expression, as a marker of one's originality. Indeed, when he arrived in France in 1948 on the GI Bill, Kelly was particularly taken by anonymous art forms, either non-Western or pre-Renaissance. It is obvious that he was fed up with individual thorns, either his or that of other artists. It is not Van Gogh's trage tragedy that fascinated him at this point, but a symmetric morphology of cycladic sculptures or of ritual objects made by Native American, Americans of the Northwest Coast not to speak of the distribution of figures in Romanesque portals and illustrated manuscripts or the hieratic postures of saints in Byzantine mosaics. The great scholar, art historian Heinrich Wölflin, had hoped for a history of art without names. That's what Kelly was practicing in his own way during the <clears throat> first six months of his French years. But two contextual factors have to be taken into consideration also here. First, let's remember that World War II had just come to a close. In the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust and of Hiroshima, it comes as little surprise that young painters would ask, what does it mean to be an artistic subject, a author, at the very moment when the humanity of any individual has been cast in doubt by the massive demonstration of our species in humanity? Second, any artist trying to affirm his selfhood in post-war Paris could not but have been sensitive to the fact that the road was blocked by a monster, by a kind of minotaur that was eating alive anyone approaching, a monster that had already invented everything. This monster was Picasso, of course, and there was no way one could invent better than him, compose better than him. There was no way one could be original, personal, in short, a modern artist with his titan around. If you started out by erasing yourself, erasing your personality, your genius and the like, if you started out by pretending you were not there, nobody would be able to come up and say that Picasso did it better. There was one thing that, did not, that Picasso did not know how to do, and that was how to erase himself, how not to invent, how not to compose. Meticulously, during all his Paris stay, Kelly will systematically explore several strategies of not, not inventing of not composing, of not taking decisions. But ways not to invent, and paradoxically, of course, of being very inventive at that, are not, very, are not in unlimited number. Kelly explored four in Paris, keeping in reserve a fifth, which I call the silhouette, that will only become his late trademark after his return to the US in 1954. 
The transfer was the first of them, but it would also be chance, the grid, and the monochrome panel. Now, these non-compositional strategies are not unique to Kelly, but what is unique with him is that he used them all in relatively short succession. I have already alluded to the transfer when I mentioned Window, Museum of Modern Art, here. Kelly would choose a pattern in the fabric of the world at large and not represent it so much as copy it or map it in the most mechanical manner. Just as one does a rubbing or gra of a gravestone or just as an archaeologist rec records the crack and lacuna of ancient reliefs. The pattern was always extracted orthogonally in plan or elevation from a field that was already flat in order to avoid any intrusion of a subjective point of view and to ensure that it would be a rigorous congruence of image and field. Such an exacting facsimile is as foreign to representation as a flag by Jasper Johns is from the Monet depicting, uh, one by that Monet depicting, depicted, sorry, flying in the breeze. Or to contrast Window Museum of Modern Art with another work by Kelly, you can immediately see how different it is from this small drawing done at around the same time. The drawing is a view, the open window frame is seen in perspective, space is represented, but the relief is a record, so to speak, like a cameraless photography one, one does by placing objects on photosensitive paper. Now, it's interesting to note that for a while, the young Kelly was obsessed with keeping the objective material sources of his transfers secret. Though he soon realized that the capacity of his fellow man to spot resemblances was limited. Window, Museum of Modern Art, Paris was exhibited first exhibited at the Salon des Realités Nouvelles, a yearly show devoted to abstract art, under the title Construction, Construction, Relief en Blanc, Gris et Noir, Construction, Relief in White, Gray and Black, a title which is still had when Kelly brought the work to Alfred Barr. Although this work is a miniature but literal rendition of one of the windows of the Palais de Tokyo, where the Museum National d'Armoden was located, uh, which ensured that most visitors of the salon would have been familiar with its source object, especially since the sash window is very rare in France, no one seems to have identified it or even suspected the very existence of such a source. But as Kelly's confidence grew with regard to the covertness of his transfer procedure, he also understood better the nature of his non-compositional drive. How radical his search for impersonality was at a moment when, either in its expressionist version, the art informel, or its rationalist one, the geometric abstraction, the advanced art exhibited around him in Paris was all about attesting something like, I think, I paint, I sculpt, therefore I am. And he grew somewhat dissatisfied with his bold invention of a way not to invent. Since they looked like abstract paintings that would have generated, that um, could have been generated in his mind alone, since nobody could see the difference between a non-compositional transfer and an arbitrary subjective composition, was all this worth the trouble? As is well known, an exploration of chance as a supreme non-objective device took the relay. At first, taking stock of the exquisite corpse and other surrealist games, Kelly had to try at automatic drawing. Then, encouraged by Jean Arp, he engaged in collages in which square bits of some of his own drawings that he had cut up into pieces were fixed as they had fallen on a sheet of paper on the floor. There are many, many collages done this way, but the only painting, the exact transfer on canvas on one of those collages, is November, November painting. 
But the result still looked like abstract composition, still looked perfectly intentional. And we could tell, indeed, that his hand had not been guided <clears throat> by his mind. The modular grid provides the answer to this conundrum. A grid doesn't look like anything but itself. A grid is, so to speak, a self-referential object. It maps the field that it covers and measures. It duplicates itself. Looking at the 1,600 units of spectrum colors arranged by chance <clears throat> of 1953, once again, the only painting that emerged from a series of collages made for, in 1951, we instantly know that the placement of all these little color squares was determined by the most implacable non-mimetic system there is, that of randomness. All danger of resemblance to a deliberate composition, to geometric abstraction as metaphor of order, was dodged. All thought of similitude was avoided. But it is with this next move that Kelly arrived at his boldest solution, one upon which many further development will be built, particularly after 1965, a date that marks his deliberate return in some ways to his French years after the interruption of, the, of 10 years that I shall be discussing in a moment. The move I'm alluding to here is initiated by the fusion of color and surface into a single unit in his 64 panels, colors for a large wall of 1951, now at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Based on a collage done in the same manner as those of his Spectrum series that immediately preceded it, and with a major, major reduction of number of units because we go from, six, from 1600 to 64, the work consists of juxtaposed monochrome panels, one per color unit. The drastic reduction of the number of units, their physical independence, was in part prompted by the pro project of a visual alphabet that Kelly had just submitted with his application for a Guggenheim Fellowship. In the manuscript of this curious little book, besides crosses, squares, circles, grids, and other elemental figures, one finds since monochromatic full pages, black, white, red, yellow, blue, green. With 64 panels, colors for a large wall, the monochrome panel becomes a combinatory unit, as indivisible, as atomistic, as the letters of the alphabet. It is this renewed wedding of the world of language and that of painting that was fully celebrated in painting for a white wall of 1952. And after that, in all the multi or single panel works by Kelly, including white relief of a dark blue of 2002. Though of course, the fact that this is a relief gives it a slightly different genealogy. Let us say that this work and others which preceded and were based on collages made in Paris Explore, explores the objecthood aspect that is already inherent, yet not yet emphasized in the multi-panel paintings of the French years. I'll come back to that. In conclusion of this little French interlude, I would like to quote a story that Kelly likes to tell, that of the little kid who, walking in the street and glancing at painting for a white wall on the balcony where it had been led to rest, cried black, pink, orange, white, blue, blue, white, orange, pink, black. Of course, he said that in French. <laughs> the letter has become a word, a name. Each panel has become the sheer affirmation of that very name. Before fast-forwarding to Kelly's return to the US, I would add that with this concept of the monochrome panel as a combinatory unit, that is, with the linguistic model of the alphabet, the artist justifiably felt that he could relax with regard to the issue of non-composition. 
Words are composed, but they are not subjective. Anyone can find them in a dictionary. Dictionaries have their poetics, their own particular charm, to be sure, but who reads them in search of an author? The grid was no longer necessary as a backup either, nor chance, nor a fortiori the transfer, or at least it could loosen his rule about not tempering. So, in bad health and pretty much at the end of his rope financially, yet sold only two works during his entire stay in France, Elsworth Kelly sailed back to America in July of 1954. The artist himself and all his commentators have emphasized the cultural shock of re-entry and the accordingly radical departure of his new American works. This should certainly not be underestimated. But ironically, the artist's sense of being a foreigner in his own country, having entirely missed abstract expressionism and being mistaken for a follower of European geometric abstraction, meant that his new situation had much in common with the exotic estrangement he had experienced in Paris. The works for which Kelly became known during the 10 first years of his American career, however, are very different from his French output. To the point that when he would occasionally show a painting done in Paris, it was hardly recognized as his. Transfers and multi-panel paintings are rare, chance works even more, grids disappear altogether between 1955 and 1965. What characterizes the painter's work for a decade is an investigation of shape as an indivisible unit, as a heraldic blazon, blazon, I suppose, uh, to use Lawrence Holloway's apt metaphor. Once again, however, there is more continuity than one might expect between the two periods, between France and America. For one thing, Kelly has been interested in the singularity of shapes all along. Recall his sketch after the Northwest Coast ceremonial plague or his quickly jotted notation of the reflection of trees on the sand, two little drawings there. And one of his first works to make conspicuous use of, the, of curves, which would become his hallmark during the first decade in New York, was based on a collage made in Paris in 1951 and the multiple wood on, work on wood entitled White Plague, Bridge, Arch, and Reflection is shown here with this collage. The, 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 the panel was made in America in 55, based on the collage made in 51. In short, Kelly had certainly noticed shapes in France and often sketched them. If Kelly did not allow himself to indulge his love of shapes in France, to allow that much, it was because he feared that, since a shape had to detach itself from the background in order to be perceived as such, he would be driven back to the classic opposition of figure and ground. He had correctly identified this dichotomy as hierarchical and thus as compositional, and he was not going to put his patient quest for impersonality and non-compositionality in jeopardy solely on account of his delight in morphology. We have seen, however, that the invention of the monochrome panel units alleviated his worry about the eradication of selfhood. It is as if, once back in New York, he was gradually able to move from the idea of color as a letter of the alphabet to the idea of shape as a word, a logo. Nothing is less personal than a logo, but also, ideally at least, nothing is more immediately legi legible. Because he wanted his shapes to be read whole, to be emblazoned, he had to contend, like any good designers of logo, although I would never say that Kelly is a designer, he had to contend with a figure ground hierarchy but now he had a reason to do so. 
Now, what follows is a period of exuberance that might be called Kelly's Baroque period, even though, as we have seen from the sampling of the Jewish Museum show in 1963, he also continued to work simultaneously in the more classical, or at least angular mode. Curiously, given that they form a relatively small portion of his entire output, it is with the curved paintings of the late 50s and early 60s that Kelly gradually gained critical attention. And it is to this <coughs> group of biomorphic canvases, or rather works in which Kelly cross-pollinates the tradition of geometric and biomorphic abstraction, that the Hirshhorn's red-white of 1961 belongs. And you can see here some of those other works with the painting. For the purpose of brevity, since we have so much more ground to cover, I'll note two things about this canvas. The first is that, contrary to almost all the other paintings of the same Baroque group, <clears throat> it was born like Athena, full in arms. What I mean is that there are almost no doodles recording its elaboration, no preliminary studies. Well, there are countless stu studies for a work like Blue White, just, just showed before. <clears throat> the only thing we could think of uh, as, as a first thought is a sheet of sketched mounted on one of the boards of Kelly's tablet, his compendium of drafts and mostly discarded visual thoughts. But there's not much in common between the stiff protuberance seen in these doodles and the sweeping curve of the final painting. No, Kelly made one sketch, and it seems without any hesitation in red ink on the page of a phone book. Why a phone book? I have no idea. And he copied it as such on his final canvas. Well, not completely, completely directly, in fact, he made first a black and white version, the dimension of which, 24 by 34 inches, is actually written down on the sketch. And he waited a year before painting his red and white canvas on the same scheme. Curiously, he changed his mind about the dimension of the red version. In the sketch, one also read red, 50 by 68 inches, but he obviously felt, after having painted the black and white canvas, that one could enlarge further the image to 60 by 85, the dimension of the work of the Hirshhorn. The second thing I'll notice is that, unlike <clears throat> many of the other curve works, in which a shape is often centered in the field, this presents a real puzzle with regard to what is figure and what is ground. I guess it would be a bad logo. In the past, Kelly had often dismissed comments about this type of ambiguity in his positive-negative, bicolored works, saying that he always tries to assign a dominant position to one of the two members of the opposition. But I think that here, as in other paintings of the same period, one is hard put in deciding which is ground, which is figure, or more exactly, in sticking to that decision. It seems to me more like the famous duck-rabbit optical illusion constantly shifting. And I, for one, do not see it as a flow at all. Now, it is not by chance that I alluded to illusion, for it seems that Kelly's investigation of the figure-ground opposition ignited in him an interest for spatial illusionism that did not abruptly end with what I've called his Baroque period. This period, the Baroque one, <laughs> terminated in 1965, I said, when Kelly rediscovered the charms of the multi-panel painting. And it is not by chance, probably, that this follows a long sojourn in France, where, as we know, he had first experienced with his form. It is also at that moment 
that Kelly questions the boundaries between painting, relief, and sculpture in an extraordinary series of angles dating from 1965-66, in which, so to speak, we are forced to see in perspective, in perspective on the ground what is a flat panel and would look orthogonal if it were just fixed on the wall. Needless to say, perspective had never been part of Kelly's arsenal. But now, suddenly, by placing horizontally on the ground the element of a painting, the panel, and thus by transforming it into a sculpture, he had inevitably, inadvertently introduced this monkey's wrench into his oeuvre. Always curious, always open to new possibilities, he decided to investigate this age-old method of spatial illusionism. The multi-panel red, yellow, Uh, the multi-panel okay. <laughs> disappeared. The painting from above, upstairs, um, is one of the first works dealing with this, perhaps the first. It is obviously linked to red, yellow, blue four of two years before, which you have here, which is also a multi-panel work. It looks like a perspectival rendering <clears throat> of this previous painting. And Kelly made elaborate calculations in order to determine the coefficient of shortening he would have to use for this illusion to be effective, as can be seen in his preparatory drawing. Incidentally, he based his computations on an exercise book he had used at Pratt in 1941-42, when he was not even 20 years old. Now, no one would deny the fact of the illusion. It's very much there. On the other hand, as long as one remembers that this is a multi-panel work, the spatial recessions begin to wobble a bit. Kelly tells us, in a way, this is not a perspectival representation of red, yellow, blue, four. Just like Magritte had written on his most celebrated canvas, this is not a pipe. Other works in this puzzle series puzzled us even further. I, I, may, I try to make an adjustment with the PowerPoint. You have the, the, the red, at least the red square line, so you can see the... the all the works in this series puzzled us further. Do we still see perspective in yellow-black <clears throat> of, of the same year, or do we immediately read this, read this work as a joining of two panels, one trapezoidal, the other triangular? And what about red-green? Kelly himself associates this painting with another series, also of 1968, in which it is an illusion of volume that is at stake. But I'm not quite sure this does full justice to the extraordinary dynamism of this work, which seems to me to announce the kind of tilting over in space that would characterize its shaped monochrome and irregular panels of the 1970s. Now, I will allow myself a digression here. When he saw this work, uh, I mean blue-green, as it was installed in the house of the collector, Asus Kelly was horrified. It was hung with his longest side horizontal. So I could not resist, even though the slide is going to be very bad, I could not resist uh, showing you a mock-up of such an installation so you could see how completely different the work would look, how, in fact, it would not be the same work at all. Now, there will be a lot more to say about Kelly's on and off interest in illusionism throughout his career, but I'd like to use yet another work of this 1968 series, Yellow Blue, to introduce another form of strategy of his. Just as we have a hard time not seeing the trapeze of red, yellow, blue five, I mean the work of the, 
Urshon, as squares in perspective, we have a hard time not to read the two quadrangles forming yellow-blue as two rectangles seen in perspective. But it is an illusion twist, illusionist twist. Kelly added another puzzle, for what you see is nothing but a folded sheet of metal. And if folding produces relatively mild distortions as it engenders space and volume out of a surface with rectilinear limits, wait and see what happens when the plane from which <coughs> this volume is generated is a circle or a kind of ovoid. This is exactly what Kelly said to find out in his series of rockers, as he nicknames them, one of which, dating from 18, uh, 1986, is in the garden outside. They come in two groups. In the one to which the Urshwal belongs, the plane from which the sculpture is generated, at least in the cardboard models that Kelly played with for a very long time before sending precise drawings to his fabricator, the plane from which the sculpture is generated has an irregular curvilinear outline, but was most often folded symmetrically. Green Rocker of 1968 is not symmetrical, but Blue Rocker of 1963 apparently is, as well as the Urshon's culture. In the other group, which was initiated by Pony, Kelly's second freestanding sculpture, dating from 1959, the shape that is folded is a portion of a circular plane. In Pony, Kelly cut out a large wedge of a full circle and symmetrically folded the strange pie he was left with. But in others, for example, the two entitled works of 1982 <clears throat> and two others of 1988, the second one being the inversion of the first, the original plane, the plane from which he bases, that he used for his model, that he folded, is simply a semi-circle, half a circle, that has been folded asymmetrically. Now, I have to admit that I personally find this second group more intriguing, more seductive, for the sheer pleasure one has to, that one has in discovering intellectually, but never being able to experience this percep perceptively, that a sheer fragment of a circle is where these shapes that look so extraordinarily irregular come from, especially since they change so much according to one's point of view. The same, of course, could be said of many of Kelly's folded reliefs of these last 20 years and folded paintings too. We know that what we see is a folded fragment of a circle where we cannot accept it visually. It is as if two different regions of our brain were solicited, each giving a different response. Now this capacity to defamiliarize us with the obvious and what is more obvious, self-evident than a circle is also characteristic of all of Kelly's work using curves after 1973. Indeed, past that date, and but for a handful of works, including uh, the work of the uh, uh, here, the, the sculpture outside, Kelly only used radii of a circle for the outlines of any of his curved shapes in painting and sculpture and relief. And when I say handful, I mean it literally. There are perhaps three or four exceptions. This, the fact that at least one of the contours of what one is seeing in a fragment is a fragment of a disk is sometimes almost impossible to fathom, the radius being often extremely wide. Just as it was sometimes hard for Kelly himself to come up with a device able to draw circles with such a wide radius in order to trace the template of, <clears throat> of one of his, his works on a sheet of paper, Kelly had often to use a makeshift compass that would, was so large that he had to go out of the door of his rather 
spatial studio. Of course, now that I've told you that, you'll think that you would have immediately recognized the outline, <clears throat> that the outline of the upper side of dark green curve of 1982 is a fragment of a circle. I mean, by the way, this is a terrible um, color, but um, this is a penny which is upstairs, so go and rush to see the original <laughs> upstairs. <clears throat> so now that I've told you that this is a fragment of a circle, is it just a show? I would have seen it. No, no, no. If I maybe be so bold to say, you would be kidding yourself in thinking you would have found it. True, this is less counterintuitive than when dealing with Kelly's totems, for example, but still I can bet that the very fact that the bottom tip of this work is far away from the circle's center would have completely derailed your gestaltist impulse. And the same is true, of course, for all the shaped canvases of the same series, an exceptionally large one of 12 canvases, all dating from 1982. Now, I didn't have the time to check, and Ellsworth will chide me for that, <clears throat> but <clears throat> fortunately, he'll have the opportunity, opportunity to correct me uh, in the discussion. Um, but I have the impression that no two works of the series have the same radius, and maybe one, and if they do, this is offset by both a change in dimension or in color. They might look the same, but as to our indiscriminate eyes, anyone who has examined Kelly's sketches, as was my privilege, knows that he agonized with fractions of a degree, with an infinitesimal difference that sometimes will only result in the final work, some of them close to five feet wide, of only a couple square inches. Fessiness, you might think, but you would think wrongly. If nothing is more recognizable than the Kelly-shaped canvas, it is above all because of its difference of a few square inches. Kelly does not know how to say, etc. For him, each shape is unique, and it is this unicity that he wants to affirm. God is in the detail, said men as different as the writer Gustave Flaubert, the art historian Abby Warburg, and the architect Mies van der Rohe. Kelly's art said it for him. The shape of every single one of his 1982 canvases is emblazoned, both unforgettable and inimitable. Now, I would like to come back for a short while <clears throat> on this issue of defemoralization, particularly defemoralization through what Kelly calls fragmentation, but which I prefer to call framing or excerpting. It is important to distinguish this process from one of stylization, the confusion between the two having often led people to believe that Kelly's work is always abstracted from the natural world. Sometimes his shapes are indeed accepted from the world at large, sometimes not at all. But what is important to realize is that he has no interest whatsoever in capturing the essence of reality. He is just interested in the unicity of a shape. Even for works which, for which one could say that is, they contain some image, some imagery, it is often a quasi-random secondary effect, a byproduct of his various work processes. Tricot and Mayo Jaune, for example, are based on a sketch of what he was seeing while sitting in an armchair through the aperture of a window in his studio, an advertisement for Knickerbocker beer on the wall on the other side of the street. Once again, it is a flat pattern that caught his eye, a pattern he could easily transfer. It is only after the fact that he associated these shapes with the image of a tank top and thought the association droll enough to convey it in the title of these two works. In other words, Kelly doesn't need imagery, but he doesn't shun it either. The grid is as much already made, 
as a common trope of modernism, as is the window, the window of the Musée National d'Art Moderne, or is a circle. As already made material, all these things are just to his voracious meal, fueled to his production engine, which is an endlessly open system. So open, in fact, that is often something in the world at large that suddenly begins to look Kelly-like. Most of his photographs actually enact this reversal, but it should be underlined that he doesn't consider them artworks. So afraid is he, and alas, rightly so, that people would read his oblique shot of a new concrete uh, flagstone on a sidewalk or his frontal view of an old barn for the reference or the motives of his work, of his painting. And any work of art by any artist, as well as a past one by himself, by the way, but that is rare, can be submitted to the same dissolution of its identity and become prey to Kelly's exception. Visiting an exhibition of paintings with Kelly is often to be alerted by him to this or that particular shape, generally interstitial between things in a picture, or to this or that color combination. There are shapes or color combinations that one has failed to notice because in order to perceive them, one has to forget the image, something he can do so effortlessly because the real background against which his shapes and color combinations stand out for him is not the picture from which his perception accepts, accepts them, but the vast mental storage in which he keeps everything he has produced. I remember vividly, <coughs> uh, specifically joke, joking with him while visiting an exhibition of Van Gogh's portraits in Boston and hearing him associate a detail of one of the canvas on view to one of his recent works. He said that he would make sure, I said that he should make sure to remember that Van Gogh had not copied them. Now though, in fact, one could say that Van Gogh is in debt to Kelly, not Van Gogh, the long dead man, but Van Gogh, the oeuvre as we see it today, benefiting from Kelly's work as well as from that of many other artists of the 20th century. But that's another story. That's the story of modernism as a whole. <clears throat> Let us rather examine one last time this <clears throat> particular mode of the transfer that is cropping, <clears throat> such as it is implemented in the maillot jaune and tricot. What is cropping? Basically, it's a photographic device, well known to painters even before the invention of photography, and which are used in order to put the emphasis on the subjective point of view of the artist and of the beholder as, say, Degas would do by dramatically cutting off the edge of the visual field. Kelly's use of cropping has nothing to do with his pain to subjective and transitory nature of experience, especially since, as one must always remember, what he crops is always flat. It is, if it involves the visual field and not, as is most often the case, the particular surface in it, it is the field, visual field as perceived with only one eye, and he does that often. More importantly, perhaps, is the fact that the cropping is itself an involuntary accident, almost like a hiccup or a fragrant slip on the of the tongue. The sudden apparition of a shape as it strikes a chord for being unrecognizable or for being recognized as something the artist consciously knows it is not. Either the shape echoes something he has made, or it appeals to Kelly for its potentiality as a score for a new piece. But the score with material performance is a real world, in the real world, an already made, unperceived by anyone but him, is only the material proof that it can indeed exist on its own. The process by which the already made shape is suddenly available to Kelly, while it escapes most of us, is one again of defamilization. It came upon the young Kelly years before he became an artist. 
and the strong memories he was about, yes, about several childhood experiences, is perhaps the reason his works remain so fresh. I'll quote two of the such memories, but there are many more. I remember that when I was about, when I was about 10 or 12 years old, I felt I was ill and fainted. And when I came to, my head was upside down. I looked at the room upside down, and for a brief moment, I couldn't understand anything until my mind realized that I was upside down, and I righted myself. But for the moment that I didn't know where I was, it was fascinating. It was like a wonderful world. And this other thing recalled by Hugh Davis, <coughs> recorded by Hugh Davis. On Halloween night in 1935 in rural Oradell, New Jersey, the 12-year-old Esther Kelly was trick-or-treating with friends in the neighborhood after dark. Upon approaching a house from a distance, he said, I saw three, color, three colored shapes, red, black, and blue, in a ground <clears throat> floor window. It confused me, and I thought, what's that? When I got close to the window, it was too high to look in easily, and I didn't want to be peeking. I was very curious and came at the window obliquely and chinned myself up, only to look into a normal furnished living room. When I backed off to a distance, it, there it was again. I now realize that it was probably my first abstract vision, something like the three shapes in red, blue, green painting. Now, I hope that it is clear by now that the cropped view of a bourgeois interior seen by the young Kelly as peeping Tom is not the source of red, blue, green. And that if I quote this passage, as well as the one about the toilet, is it because they offer a perfect example of the kind of defamilization allowed by Kelly's system, a kind of defamilization wonderfully analyzed by Maurice Merleau-Ponty in The Phenomenology of Perception when he wrote that, I quote, to put an object up upside down is to remove its signification. And, in, and when he noted how difficult it is when walking along an avenue to see the spaces between the trees as things and the trees themselves as background. This is the kind of thing that Kelly does all the time. Well, hopefully not when he drives, but most of the time. And so I'm afraid <clears throat> I do not have enough time left to give its full due to the last work in the Urshan collection, the wonderful white relief of a dark blue of 2002. I'm sorry, also I say, we'll have to elaborate another time about it. To do so would require retracting its genealogy, both as far as medium and as far as shape is concerned in Kelly's large oeuvre. And that would be quite a task, a whole lecture in itself, for Kelly started making reliefs at the very beginning of his career, as you have seen with Window Museum of Modern Art in 1959, and here are a few others from 1950. Not only that, but the particular family of reliefs to which white relief of a dark blue belongs, made of two monochrome panel, two monochrome rectangular panels, one being over the other, has also a long history <clears throat> in Kelly's oeuvre. The first one was made in New York in 1954, but based on a Paris collage from the previous year. But it has siblings all <clears throat> through Kelly's career. His works from 1959, 56, and 67, uh, 66 and 67, but there are many others. And as for the medium relief, but in terms of formal configuration, independently of medium, the family is even further extended, as it includes countless sketches and collages dating from Kelly's last two years in Paris, and quite a few paintings over the years, sometimes not based on these early ideas. I'll show you two paintings here, but both from 1970, but I believe, but believe me, there are many, many more. 
So given that I obviously cannot engage in this complex history at this hour, I would like to point out to some, some characters, some unique characters, I would like to point out some unique characteristic of Kelly's production, which this works like so many of his exemplifies. What I'm alluding, alluding to is the fact that this relief and the, 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 and the, the canvas here, the uh, red and blue canvas on which it is, a ba uh, which is, uh, which is this kind of pendant, is uh, based on a collage that dates from 1969. But its source could have just have been a collage dating from 1950. Kelly likes to rummage among the treasure trove of his sketches, collages, doodles that he has accumulated over the years and treats, he treats it exactly as he treats all he sees as a universe from which he can excerpt things as well. <laughs> White relief of a black, for example, done exactly at the same time as a Hirschhorn relief, was based on the collage, or rather pliage, or foldage, I don't know how you say that, because the, the, the white plane, the white piece of paper is folded under the, the black. It's like a sandwiching. The, the black. Um, uh, white relief of the black it was based on those collage done, which is, uh, which is date, date from 2002, was based on this collage made in 1955. And there are countless examples. I'm persuaded, for example, that red with white with white relief, also from 2002, came about when Kelly took a renewed interest in his tablet at the occasion of the exhibition of his um, of this set you know, of two, 200 boards where he had mounted various sketches. It was exhibited in New York in 2002. And so he obviously looked at, at this work before it was exhibited again uh, and discovered this, this little sketch or that he had this little fan object actually that he had glued in his board uh, while looking at this thing and decided to make the relief at that time. The 2000 work, as it were, is based on a doubly, doubly found object. The first time around, this object was a piece of paper that Kelly picked up in the street or somewhere, and the second time, it was the same piece of paper, but it had been mounted in the early 70s and left dormant ever since. Now, this capacity of Kelly to summon at any time any first idea he had in, this, in, in the past and <clears throat> to realize it is very rare among artists. Most artists doing a flashback that jumps of a decade would not resist amending the initial thought. Where does this peculiarity come from? I believe that as most aspects of Kelly's oeuvre, that it goes back to his formative years in Paris. As <clears throat> I said earlier that the non-compositional strategies that he explores then in Paris were not unique to Kelly, but was unique to him was the fact that he used them all in relatively short succession. They yielded formal results that were so diverse, and Kelly was so productive that the Ariadne's thread of non-compositionality that linked almost all the works he produced in France was completely missed, even by his greater admirers, until quite recently. In fact, this very diversity leads me to correct myself here. I said that Kelly used all his non-compositional strategies relatively, in relatively short succession. But this phrase is only accurate if one considers the original appearance of each of these strategies in his oeuvre. Indeed, the sequence of their invention has a logic that I explored at great lengths elsewhere, 
the explanation of chance follow, following that of transfer, of grid following that of chance, of the monochrome panel as a unit following the grid, and of the silhouette following the monochrome panel. But that doesn't mean that he ever abandoned a strategy after having stumbled upon the next one as its dialectical offspring. <clears throat> On the contrary, Kelly keeps everything in store or on his back burner, happy to return to it, <clears throat> to anything he suddenly fancies in his immense repertoire whenever he feels like it. This remarkable free attitude towards his past oeuvre, this capacity to revive any moment of it at any moment, without any chronological consideration of, for development, or so it seems at least at first, is something that has often puzzled critics. But such a puzzlement, which is closely linked to the one I just mentioned about the diversity of Kelly's production in France, ought to disappear once we understand why these early years are so crucial. It is a time where the artist elaborated his fundamental matrix, to use Benjamin, Benjamin Buchlow's expression on, in his essay on Kelly's work. This matrix is the sum of the four and then five strategies that I've identified. One could even say that <clears throat> it is a product rather than a sum of these strategies. Kelly's grammar is extremely rigorous, though only him knows its rule, and, and the truth fully knows its rules, and like any good grammar, there are always exceptions. But precisely because it is so rigorous, it has an infinite generative potentiality. The manifold diversity of his oeuvre is the first time of, his, of this potentiality, and the second is its longevity. So long life to Ellsworth, so he can continue to do more. Thank you.